Do you ever see a successful woman on your feed or in a magazine and think, wow, it must be nice to have it so easy? Well, think again. Behind that glossy cover or smiling face is a ton of hard work, countless failures, and endless learning experiences. I'm Rebecca Minkoff, and I'm here to tell you that success isn't a walk in the park. It takes grit, resilience, and a willingness to take risks. That's why I created Superwoman, a podcast that peels back the varnish and gets into the nitty gritty of what it takes to make it as a woman in today's world. From luminaries and game changers to women you've never heard of but should, this podcast is here to inspire you to take your next leap, no matter how daunting it may seem. We'll explore the sacrifices these women have made, the highs and lows they've experienced, and the lessons they've learned along the way. So if you're ready to be inspired and learn from some of the most successful women out there, join me on Superwomen. Together, we'll uncover the stories behind the successes and prove that with hard work, determination, and a little bit of luck, anything is possible. Hey everyone, you're listening to Superwomen. Today's guest is the indomitable Eve Barlow. I met Eve over, as a lot of people do, Instagram after October 7th when I saw what she was posting and was fueled by her energy, her mission to fight anti-Semitism, and the journalistic work that she does, which is incredible. Her Substack Blacklisted is a must-read, so take a listen to this special episode. Before before we keep going, because I know I want to talk to you so long. Um, but I want to, I want to talk a little bit about your history, your experience. I don't even, I had been following you for a while. Um, and obviously this all came to a head. And so we were talking a lot late at night, but I would love for you to share a little bit about your background in your journalism, what happened in Hollywood. You can go brief. Um, and you know, what you've been doing online to sort of combat everything you experience. And then we'll, we'll go deep into these, you know, anti-Semitism issues and what people can do to get educated so that they are aware of what's going on, even if they don't want to see burning babies or raped women. Sure. Um, okay. <laughs> well, I can do a quick recap. So <laughs> I was, you know, I always just really loved pop culture and I loved the idea of being a writer and wasn't very good at it at first. But, you know, you write, write, write and write. And then eventually you you find a voice for yourself. And for, you know, for most of my 20s and the first half of my 30s, I was a very popular music and well, mainly music journalist, music, film, pop culture. You know, I became I, I used to run a major music magazine in London called the NME or the Musical Express. I did that for a few years and I was responsible for breaking your favorite new artists for years and like going on the road with them and being up close and personal with rock stars basically and then I decided to hot foot it over over the ocean and moved to LA in 2014 um I I came here because one of the bands that I broke were some of my best friends and they lived out here and invited me to come and live with them for a while so I had this kind of like almost famous experience when I came to to LA and you know I, I started to freelance right from here and because I was in the center of the action in Hollywood I found myself um, gaining a reputation as a really good profile writer which you know it wound up happening to me then in order to become a really really top-notch safe pair of hands trusted profile writer you need to be a really popular liked secure honest 
trustworthy journalists that you can embed yourself with some of the world's biggest A-listers and they, you know, they trust you enough to tell you things they've never told anyone else. And they know that you will tell their story in a way that honors them. And so I, I was doing that for right up until the pandemic, more or less. Um, I was a go-to profile writer here and traveling the world, like going again, still going on the road with people or 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 traveling overseas to interview the biggest stars wherever they were working and on whatever projects we're doing. And I was still writing a lot about music and and film and and writing pieces of criticism. And I was writing for everyone. I mean every single title on the planet I was writing for. And um and my my career was really going places. And then the BLM movement happened, or it became it it came completely overground and George Floyd was killed. And that weekend, the people who were marching in the streets were vandalizing synagogues. And I said at the time on Twitter, I completely stand for fighting against anti-Black racism, systemic racism in this country. It's a problem. However, you can't fight hate with hate. And how dare you, in the name of that, vandalize Jewish places of worship? These are synagogues. They aren't urban outfitters. They aren't branches of Starbucks. These are these are holy temples for Jewish people. And um, as my former editor of GQ, who I used to write for all the time I was one of their most popular profile writers texted me oh you just did a whoopsie on Twitter (laughs) and so my my whoopsie so so this so now you can you can see you can probably read that that tweet devoid of context at the moment and say you know fair like that tweet's pretty innocuous but at the time you couldn't you couldn't do anything other than post a black square and say i'm sorry i'm sorry i'm sorry i'm sorry you know it's but like that was it i know i i couldn't post about my store getting vandalized because it was gonna upset too many people and i was upset because my store was vandalized but i couldn't say anything sure right but and and we've got to wonder how that was a healthy moment in advocacy because um people can be abused but they can also turn into abusers. And that's what we've seen happen with all of these victim movements. It's, well, I, you know, and I call them victim movements because they don't really seem to be about, about equality and transgressing, transgressing oppression. They seem to be about acquiring power and usurping power and using victimhood and weaponizing victimhood to disempower other people and and uh, take out acts of revenge that are unjustified and like i say it's the bullied become it's the bullied becoming the bully it's the abuser uh, the abused becoming the abuser and and that's what we experience so after my whoopsie moment, um, I continued, you know, I was already advocating for Jewish people. I've been doing it since 2015 alongside my pop culture, my pop culture work, but it never was so front and center that it created any issues until these bigger kind of woke moments were happening. And then, and I was so well loved and so successful that there was an element of schadenfreude to this where I stepped out of line with the progressive community and suddenly it rained 
hell on earth mentioned because when this was out in the world, whenever my hate name is mentioned, it just trends again for a week. Wait, what is a hate name? So a hate name is, I'm not going to tell you mine, but they're, you know, they're usually like pretty um, infantile, like toilet humor. It's the sort of thing that you would be called in a playground where, you know, if your name, they'll rhyme your name with something really puerile and insipid. And then, and then it would trend all the time. And and it was basically... But it's not about the hate name. It's about the for. It's about the dehumanizing of me and the and the erasure of my career because right. suddenly everything was about me being some kind of caricature of the evil Zionist. And I, my career was basically wiped from view overnight. I mean, sometimes I go to just to see because it's in my my gut feels that this is going to happen one day. But sometimes I go on like Pitchfork and GQ and, you know, like wh- whatever, like LA Times, like whatever titles that I used to write for all the time. And I just like check that all of my archive is still on their websites because I am, I do imagine that one day they might just be like, in the trash you know like yeah because because that is effectively what all of them did to my reputation it's just overnight you know and and it it, well it wasn't necessarily overnight it was kind of gradual and it happened in waves but it was uh, once the dominoes started falling it was unstoppable you know and do you feel as you fast forward to this moment that you're like see there is anti-semitism and is, is anyone coming back to you and being like, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, just kidding. No. No, that takes far too much accountability. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, there have been, there's been the odd person who has said to me, you know, I used to think you were really hysterical, but actually you're right. And I, you know, I shouldn't have been one of the people that thought you were hysterical but every single one of those people was also someone who stood by me regardless of thinking I was hysterical the people who completely shut my shut me out no shit for what they did because I think it's pretty obvious now that if they did that they would see that there's blood on their hands and they would have to they would have to make reparations for it because by the way I'm not forgiving anyone like this is unforgivable what happened but I used to always say you know, better safe than sorry. I would rather be hysterical and hyper, hyper vigilant and and wrong than like blase, silent and correct. And as it so happens, I I was hyper vigilant and hysterical and correct. And I have no regrets at all because, you know, for me, I I'm not really motivated. I'm not motivated by much other than the integrity of my work and telling the truth and and disrupting disrupting narratives that are harmful and that only seek to serve the grifters and people who are again like trying to overpower other people and um and for that purpose I couldn't stay working in an industry that didn't recognize my humanity I mean I was renowned for breaking artists of color breaking LGBTQ plus artists putting women on magazine covers um advocating for all of these causes and 
So I couldn't stand shoulder to shoulder with people I'd been in the trenches with on all of these other issues, knowing that they could turn on a dime that fast because I'm Jewish. So how do you, your career is ended, then you launch Blacklisted. I'm sure it wasn't, you know, there was a cup, there was a delay there. How have you managed to sort of come out from that and and tell all the stories that you tell um, and grow, you know, continue to grow your voice, continue to be out there when now it feels like things are closing in again, right? People are people are being silent. Hollywood is being silent. Heads of agencies are being silent. So, I mean, obviously... I feel like there's a, there's a, there's like these lights, there's these people that are just, I don't fucking care. I'm going to talk about this all the time, but I'm curious from, from starting your Substack blacklisted to now, how have you sort of carved your path in a way that you feel was, was how you had to rebuild? Strategy. (laughs) Um, But it was more just do or die. I mean, it was totally about my survival. I I started Blacklisted. It even says on the first post is called Hello. And um, when, when you sign up for a subscription, I think it automatically goes into the inbox. And I remember it was the night that Meatloaf died. And I... I was sitting in my apartment listening to Meatloaf. I had like nothing left in my bank account. You know, I had like less than a thousand dollars left. I was extremely panicked about how I was going to continue to make rent. And I'd been doing this work for a while. And I knew that Substack was a thing that was helping journalists who'd been cancelled. And, you know, it's very hard as a Jewish advocate to get any support. Um, It's hard to get support from our establishment organizations, our establishment hasn't caught up to what what the online activists are doing. So right. I, I I started Substack, I started blacklisted on Substack in an absolute blind moment of desperation and panic. I just thought if if you know 50 people sign up tonight and sign up for five dollars a month, I might be able to pay my rent this month. You know, like that was my that was my feeling. That was why I did it. And so, and I even said at the beginning, I, you know, I don't know what I'm going to write about and what this is going to be, but if you believe in me, like, just (laughs) please just come along for the ride. And truly at the beginning, it was just a way for all of the thousands of people in my DMs every week to directly support my work because I wasn't finding any other avenue for anyone to support my work. And I started to get a few speaking engagements, um, But again, you know, the problem with this space is that once you've kind of spoken at one WITSO event or one AJC event or one Federation event or whatever, you've done them for a while. So it's hard to make sustainable living out of just advocating for Jewish people. And it's not about making money either. It's about being an advocate. So it's, it's very it's very hard to you know, suddenly be challenged with how the hell do I survive? I've been totally blacklisted from my industry. My work is, I'm being told that my work is essential to the moment, but I don't know how to get anyone to pay for my voice um, or to support me. So that's why it started. And blacklisted sort of ebbed and flowed um, over the course of the past 
it's been it'll be two years in January so during the first year it just sort of ebbed and flowed and I wrote on it as when I felt I, I felt compelled to but I, I will also say that for a long time because of what happened to me I really struggled with my I didn't struggle with my confidence with writing but sometimes I just struggled to feel connected to my craft because it had brought me so much pain and because people had so willfully like decided that I was a crappy journalist, even though I was a great journalist and still am a great journalist, um, because they were trying to throw the kitchen sink at ending my career. Um, it just it, it made it quite difficult for a period to consistently write. But then I found, you know, particularly, um, I mean, the second October 7th began, many of my friends, including other activists who work in the space said that they found out that Israel was under attack because I immediately posted a, an article about it on my Substack. Um, and Blacklisted broke the news for many people. And then, you know, I was, I, I mean, that first, it wasn't actually October 7th here, it was October 6th, and it was about 10 o'clock at night when I saw the map of all of the um, air raid sirens all over Israel and I was like what the hell is going on it looks like yeah. the entire country is being attacked and then my DMs started flooding with the most horrific things I've ever seen in my life you know the footage of the elderly being shot at bus shelters and footage of Hamas soldiers just running around towns in southern Israel with RPGs without anyone stopping them. I mean, we'd never seen scenes like this. So yeah. I was gathering all of this information and posting it on Blacklisted. And suddenly Blacklisted turned into a, a substack that could kind of do some pop culture stuff, kind of did some Jewish advocacy stuff, was sort of, you know, whatever I kind of felt like doing it in the moment it suddenly became like war correspondence right. and I became like a full-fledged war reporter and more or less every single day now since October 7th in the evening I sit down and I do either a roundup of what's happened that day or um, a broader journalistic piece to try and explain certain elements of the war to the wider world but I've been writing on I think I've taken about five days off since October 7th and so since then my substack has become an essential read to you know I've got I've I've accrued thousands upon thousands of subscribers and I couldn't be more proud of it it's become a best-selling substack and I guess I guess you go where you're needed right <laughs> like like if, if someone doesn't want you at the party anymore you leave and you go to another party not the next party you made fun, your own party i made my own party it's a scary party <laughs> Hey, Superwomen, if you happen to be in Dallas, you can experience the Augustina Spader brand at their first pop-up store located in the West Village, next door to Sephora. The brand will open its doors on November 16th and will be there until the end of December. So stop by for all of your critical skincare needs. They will also be offering their Epic Spa services currently only available in New York City in this location. So be sure to book your Bader Glow just in time for your holiday parties. 
as my listener, you're going to get 20% off with the code SUPERWOMEN when you shop in store, and it's valid for product purchases, not services. Go get that glow, ladies. So I had a call with um, a marketing guru who I had felt was very, who's Jewish, who's very quiet, and, and I didn't want to attack him. And I said, you know what? I just want to know, I'm sure you're doing something, but you've been very silent. He's like, oh, I've been busy. I'm just, I had a real death threat, like someone in the building to come try and kill me. So you might not see me doing it publicly, but here's what's going on in the background. And so one of the things we spoke about um, in our call was we've seen the division of America in the last however many years, and you're never going to convince a Republican to become a Democrat and vice versa. Right. And he said on this issue, you're, you're never going to sway the people that are at the polar opposites. And someone's going to say, Oh, you're right. This is okay. Or it's not okay. But he said the way to make change is to, Expose the hypocrisy, right? The hypocrisy of the people that are fighting for this in U.S. soil, that they would be dead if they went there, that they wouldn't be allowed to have a job or they might be raped or hung or whatever it is. And you have to expose that because that's the only thing that gets them to shift. So I was just curious your perspective on that, on what he said is like the only way we can get people to wake up is exposing just the the hypocrisy of of what they think they're standing up for. Yeah, I think there's a few things there because the, as I said before, it is helpful to frame this as a war between ideologies and reminding people that if they're with the fundamentalist, you know, the, the fundamentalist terrorist ideology, then the country they currently live in, if the ideology was to come here, would not, be remotely reflective of the present moment and that they would be living in a total in an autocracy they would not be living in a democracy so i i do think that there is some use to that to saying you do realize that all of the fundamental rights and freedoms that you bleat on about and fight for every single day would suddenly like just become a like truly become a moot point if if this society in any way reflected the society that hamas wants to impose with a caliphate upon the world, or rather not Hamas, but, you know, the the Iranian Republic, um, which Hamas is just a tiny little wing of. Um, But I think that, you know, I saw my friend Yashar Ali, who is an amazing um, online commentator and journalist and who has been doing extremely fair and balanced reporting on this since October 7th and dedicated reporting, said something yesterday about how frustrating this hypocrisy argument is. And I did understand what he was saying, because what he was trying to say is it. it it presupposes that you shouldn't fight for the rights of people in places where you wouldn't be treated as a human being. And I get that. Like there's, there is something problematic with that argument because it's like saying that, you know, you shouldn't fight for, for women who are in an autocratic African countries, because if you were a woman there, you would be treated in the same way. Like it, it doesn't quite make sense. I think the thing that's more important to point out is equally recognizing 
um, Israelis and seeing them as equal and seeing Jewish people as equal to the Palestinians that they, you know, claim to be advocating for. I think that's more the point. It's okay, fine. We hear we hear you support the Palestinian cause, but why are you okay with what happened on October seventh? Because there were plenty of people who were murdered on that day, and and you know. You know, similarly to the feminists, which has been the majority of, well, not the majority of my work, but a big focus of my work and my, you know, absolute horror is, okay, fine, feminists for Palestine, you're going to wear a kifia, okay, great. However, um, do that all you want, but there's clearly a chink in your armor here because you seem to think that the brutal raping of of women on October 7th is somehow, you know, contextualized slash justified. Well, you're full of shit. You know, I think that that's more that's more. Where I we get go. that. I think that's very that's a very salient point. And I feel like, yeah. I feel like the silence, especially around UN women and so many, so many women's organizations uh, is, is shocking. So what, where do we go from here? You know, like as far as like, not we, the Jews, cause I think we're all trying to figure out our path and ways we can amplify, but like, where do you go if you're listening to this episode today to educate yourself besides you're, they're all going to go to blacklisted, but and they're going to pay to subscribe. But where, what can people do who feel like, again, I just, I just can't do it. It's just too much. It's just too much. Look, it's, it's very, you know, I don't know why it's more for us than it is for any other community. Like it shouldn't be any more emotional labor unless you, unless there's something that's making you feel inherent guilty because maybe you're guilty of having had some, you know, some some bias previously towards Jews, or maybe it's the case that you don't see Jewish people as victims of 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 atrocities in the way that you do other people, and that's that's something that our non-Jewish neighbors have to try and see past and accept and understand. Oh, maybe I maybe I do have a problem here. Um. Uh, you know, generating empathy or concern for Jewish people because I do have some kind of issue where I think that oh the Jews are fine like they're you know they're they they run things like they're they're totally fine um but that's that's an issue I think I think the first step is to kind of face yourself and figure out why you know that if it was a case of like one child being kidnapped anywhere in the world by a bunch of monsters and being held in captivity for 50 plus days and the whole the whole world would stop and be on the edge of its seat every single award ceremony would have a segment about this child the child would be in every single slotted into every single series of advertisements everywhere all over the world you would not you would never stop hearing about the child yeah. But we have 240 cases of this and the world has proactively erased it, shut it out. Even now that many of them are coming out, we're still not seeing other people other than us share these heart-rendering, gut-wrenching videos of these hostages being reunited with their families. It's, you know, so I think the first question is, do you feel empathy for it? If you do, great. <laughs> if you don't, Figure out why that is. Come to terms with it. Be honest with yourself. 
and you know in terms of more what you can personally do other than obviously watch your feed, watch my feed, subscribe to my Substack, et cetera, et cetera, is first of all, seek out other other advocates just like us on Instagram who are sharing the real-time information, standing up against the propaganda, putting out factually based information, not just about the war, but also about the Jewish experience, about the history of anti-Semitism, about what it means to be Jewish, you know, um, there are plenty of us online. And if you follow, if you follow me, you'll wind up learning who the other one. And I think you know, there's there's that is both things. It's both a disaster and a really useful tool. And I think for moments like this, if you come across really great accounts that are sharing information like this, it can be an amazing educational tool. But beyond us, there are plenty of books out there that are great starters on, you know, the history of Israel, um, the history of this conflict. One that's really popular among people because it's such an easy read is Noah Tishby's book, uh, it's just called Israel, I think. I think it's called Israel, the most, um, I can't remember the the long title, but it's Israel by Nishmi, you'll find it. Yeah, okay. Um, you know, I also thought that a few years ago, I read Barry Weiss's How to Fight Anti-Semitism. That's a really also easy read, a very quick introduction on where anti-semitism comes from and why it shows up differently on the left and on the right and also in the arab world um yeah there's there's so many books i i mean i could i could list many books that are very useful um letters to my palestinian neighbor is an incredible book by yossi klein halevi who's an academic who lives in tel aviv i think he lives in tel aviv um, and it's a it's a beautiful book for not I think it particularly has been popular with non-Jewish people I've shared it with as a very balanced understanding of what it's like for Israelis and Palestinians to live next to each other and sometimes to coexist living peacefully within these texts and engage with them. You're a wealth of information and I appreciate that. And I think that people starting by following you and, you know, subscribing to Blacklisted will get a good start. Um, I feel like I could talk to you for five more hours and I know you have to go. Um, is there anything that I didn't, that we didn't touch on that you think is important to underline? I think it's just really important to understand how fragile a time this is for the Jewish community, um, how emotionally complex it is for us. And by that, I mean that there's a roller coaster, there's an emotional roller coaster that we're on all the time right now. And it's very, it can be very isolating and it can mean that we can feel quite dissociated from everything else that's going around going you know going on in the world um i think thanksgiving for me was a very clear example of that where you know i just i i struggled to feel connected to what was in the calendar of of the rest of the world while this is going on because as we see so often 
when th there are seismic shifts and halts in society when really drastic, terrible things happen and everyone recognizes the moment and comes together. And we're currently going through a moment where that's not happening for us. Right. So we're having to hold our pain separately in, in an individual community, separate from the rest of the world. And honestly, Jews are used to doing that. It's kind of the Jewish way. But I think it's... I, we expect it different. We expect it different. Yeah. Check in with us. Yeah. Be a bit kinder. We don't need tough love and debates about geopolitics and you know fights we need comfort and and understanding and an ear we need people to listen yeah. and we also need you to ask the awkward questions that you've never asked just ask them and we will answer them and then accept the answer right like don't fight the answer just accept it because we're telling you the truth right 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 there's no there's no buts in this case there's no this is not a time for buts Zero. <laughs> No. Um, I still remain so thankful and grateful for everything you're doing, your voice, your outspokenness, your bravery, frankly, because I know it must not be easy. Um, so thank you. Have a good thank Shabbat. You. <laughs> you too. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you so much for having me and for supporting everything that I do and for being a brave voice yourself. Of course. I just wanted to thank you guys for listening to today's episode. I also want to ask you to rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. I know it's a pain in the butt, but it actually helps with search and algorithm. So if you love this podcast, it is an easy way to get it more visible and out there. I also want you to follow me on Instagram at Rebecca Minkoff at RM Superwomen and be sure to check out my book, Fearless, The New Rules for Unlocking Creativity, Courage, and Success. Thank you again, and you will hear from me next week.